Morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As Elliot said, we're starting a new message series, looking at the most famous of all last words. Now, last words in general carry more weight than everyday words do. I mean, everyday words are pretty easy to ignore because of their repetitiveness. I mean, if you miss an everyday word, the person who spoke that word will most likely be around tomorrow, or at least someday soon, and they can repeat it if necessary. But last words, by definition, can never be repeated. And that's what makes them, in part, so important. Now, sometimes last words are spoken as a person maybe breathes their last breath. Sometimes last words are very carefully chosen and carved maybe into the granite of their tombstone. But whether they're spoken or whether they're written, last words are always remembered by those who love them. And that's because last words are summary words. They summarize what the speaker values and what they want those who they love to know and to do after they're gone. I'll never forget my grandfather's last words to me. I was 17. My grandfather had spent most of his life as a carpenter. And the high point of his financial success occurred when he was able to pull together enough money and stop being a carpenter, and he became the owner of a small store. That was kind of the high point of his financial success. The low point was when that store burned down and he lost everything that he owned in one night. Now, German was his first language, and so his English was heavily accented, was very hard for me to understand, and so we didn't really talk that much. But at this particular family gathering, he called me over to his side, and that was unusual, and then he grabbed me by the arm, not hard, but firm, and he pulled me close, and he said uh, he wanted to quote to me his favorite verse in the Bible. And this is what he said. He quoted 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, my grandfather knew a lot about labor. You could just see his hands and touch his hands, and you could see the calluses from a, a life of hard work with his hands. And he had become a Christian later in life and had become convinced that the only labor that was not in vain, the only thing that you could build that would not burn down in a day was work done in service to Jesus Christ. And he wanted me, his grandson at age 17, to know this also. Now, neither of us knew that this would be his last words spoken to me, but I will never forget them. And throughout my life, I again and again have gone back to this verse and used it to refocus my efforts around the things that really last. And I am so grateful for the power of his last words to me. You know, we all really need the power of last words. And so we're going to be looking at the most important and most famous of all last words, those spoken by God. They're recorded in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. But most famous doesn't necessarily mean most understood. In fact, while many of the words in this book are somewhat straightforward and easy to understand, a lot of this book is really difficult. And let's just be honest, pretty bizarre if you've read through it. I mean, there are sky battles between angels and beasts that defy description. You read through them and you wonder, what, what is that? And there are scenes of awful punishments and glorious salvations. There are scrolls to be opened and read, and there are bowls of wrath to be poured out. And there are songs of tremendous mourning 
and songs of great rejoicing. And at the turn of almost every page, you find yourself wondering, what does it all mean? Well, the answer to that question, I think, is best found by considering the two main purposes of this book. And that's where we're going to begin this morning, to look at what, what was the purpose of these last words when God revealed them to John. The per- first purpose we're going to consider is this, to imagineer the future. To imagineer the future. Now, you probably recognize that I'm borrowing the imagineer word from the Walt Disney Company. I first saw this word on display on the outside of an old GE carousel of progress in Disneyland. And that sign informed the public that there were Imagineers at work inside creating something new and amazing. Now, for me, I thought the GE Carousel of Progress was pretty amazing. But the Imagineers had something new in mind, something even more amazing. Now, what is an Imagineer? I mean, it's a made-up word that Disney came up with, but they've really just combined two words, imagine and engineer, together. Now, to imagine is to see something that doesn't exist yet. To engineer is to design it and build it. Now, Disney is not the only place where Imagineers are at work. We are all Imagineering the future. We are all first imagining what might happen in the future, and then we are designing it and beginning to take steps to build that future. We do this all the time. It wasn't long after I first began dating my wife, that I began to imagineer a marriage. Began to think about what steps could I take and how might I get to the point where this, this woman would say yes were I to propose to her. When I was 22, I began to imagineer a church that's pretty much, very much like this one. Now, neither that marriage Or this church materialized the next day because I had imagined what it might be like. Now, that took a lot of engineering and a lot of building to get from those days to this day. And the Imagineering, of course, isn't done yet. Even though my wife and I have now been married for 33 years, we have to continue to imagine the future and build towards it. The same thing is true with this church. We're not perfect. We've got a lot of Imagineering that we can continue to do. So I'm constantly imagineering in both of those areas and in many other areas. And you're doing the same. We all do this. It's how we move into the future. But it all begins with an imagination. What we imagine, we might then engineer and we might then build. But if we don't imagine it, we won't engineer it and we won't build it. Now we all begin life fairly strong in the imagination category. Not so strong in the engineering category, but pretty strong in the imagination category. I mean, little kids have amazing imaginations. My granddaughters have a very healthy imagination. Here's Millie and Clara, two of my granddaughters, in our hot tub in our backyard. And whenever we're in the hot tub, what happens is pretty miraculous. Automatically, I become a scary dragon, (laughs) and they become mermaids called Gwendolyn. Millie is Gwendolyn, and Clara is baby Gwendolyn. <laughs> now, I don't know where Gwendolyn came from. They, they don't, you know, uh, we have no idea. We don't know what story it came from. It, it just came out of Millie's imagination. And so 
I'm capturing them and taking them across the Caribbean Ocean and locking them in prisons, and then we turn the lights on, and those are all the dragon eye friends that come out to help me. Ca- I mean, it just, the story just goes on and on and on, and I'm continually catching up with, now, what am I? Am I the mean dragon now? Or am, I the, am I the friendly dragon now? And just, it just keeps changing because the imagination just keeps rolling off ideas. And then we get out of the hot tub, and all of a sudden, I'm the big fat cat. <laughs> and they're... They're little mice running around the backyard, and I'm supposed to chase them. Now, I'm okay with being the big cat. I don't know about why I have to be the big fat cat. But again, it's not my imagination. It's their imagination. So I chase them around the backyard until I get tired. I always get tired before their imagination gets tired. But it just goes on and on and on. And if if you're around little ones or you remember being around little ones, this is just the way it is. They're continually imagining all kinds of amazing and fantastical things. Why so much imagination on the part of little ones? Well, the entire future is in front of them. They have a lot of imagining to do. Now, what they're going to need to learn how to do is how to take some of those imaginings and figure out how to engineer a future out of that. Well, what tends to happen over time is our healthy imagination begins to be less healthy. Time tends to take a toll on imagination. And the reason is because, as adults, we learn how hard it is to turn imagination into reality. Engineering is hard work, and there's a lot of failure involved in it. And then as we get older, we have less and less time from where we are into the end of our life to imagine a different future and build a different future. And so just a natural process is we, we start life strong in imagination and weak in engineering, and we kind of end life strong in engineering and kind of weak in imagination. You know, something like our marriages start to fail. If we're a little older and have been married for a while, the first thing we do is we try to figure out how to engineer a solution. We don't start with imagination. But that's where change always starts, with imagination. It's because we are imagineers, not just engineers. We build our lives first out of our imagination. And we can't change the direction of our life without first engaging our imagination. And that's why God's final words to us in the book of Revelation are imagination words, not engineering words. Here's what we read in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the first two verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. Now, I want you to notice a couple of key words in these first two verses. Notice that the revelation which God gave was to show his servants what must soon take place. Not just tell them the events and the dates that were coming so that they could get out their calendars and mark them and get ready. No, it was to be a visual showing. John was given, we are told, the task of testifying to everything, not that he heard, but that he saw. This is a visual book, not an information book. Here's how it all took place. We read about it in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see 
and send it to the seven churches. And then the seven churches are listed after this. Now, John was on the island of Patmos, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What you have to understand is the island of Patmos was a prison island. John was there as a prisoner. As a pastor of a first century church, he had been arrested for his faith in Christ and his role of leading in the church. And now, all by himself, without his church around him, he still had to practice on every Lord's Day, every Sunday, he would take time to worship God. And he was doing just that when he heard a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you, have, what you see and send it to the seven churches. I don't know if you've ever had a trumpet blast behind you. That's not something you can ignore. Now, the question is this. How can you use words to show what you have seen, not just tell what you've seen? He's supposed to show what he's seen. Well, the words that are best suited for that task are words of poetry. And this is why most of Revelation is written in poetic form. It's one series of poems, one after another. Now, the problem that that presents for us is this. Not many of us read poetry. Even fewer of us know enough about poetry to even try to compose poetry. For the most part, the modern mind doesn't like poetry. And I'll include myself in that. I mean, poetry, to be honest, poetry frustrates me. I mean, I read a couple of lines, and I think, what in the world is that supposed to mean? I mean, I, I prefer language that's clear and plain, you know, clear statements of logic, straightforward statements of what they're trying to say. You know, what I really prefer, honestly, is the language of engineering. I mean, I'm an, I'm an analyzer. So just give me the data and let me figure it out. But poetry is frustrating for engineering-type minds like mine and maybe yours. That's because poetry keeps beating around the bush, and it prefers to leave the reader with an impression, with a painting, rather than just making a point. Now, to me, that often seems like a waste of time. Now, the word poet is a Greek word, and it means maker. That's what a poet does, is they create. They make. A poet uses words not just to explain something, but to make something. That's why poetry is considered an art form. It is the language of imagination, not the language of engineering. But most people, especially in the modern times, tend to read this book kind of more like an engineering text, thinking that it contains all the secret codes for the future events and the dates. And it is a failure to read this book as it was written, as poetry, that has led to so much misunderstanding and so much misuse of these last words. Now, why would God choose poetry for his last words? Well, it's at the end when our imaginations are most in need of being rekindled. Whether it's near the end of our life or, in this case, at the end of the Bible. And if you read through the entire Bible up to this point, you will come to this last book not in need of more information. The 65 books that precede this have a lot of information. Those 65 books contain everything that you need to know that has to do with your salvation, that has to do with how to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's already been laid out in great detail. 
Now, the danger when you come to this point in the book, the Bible, the end of it, the danger is not that after reading all that God has said, that you will not be fully informed about God. No, you will be fully informed about God. The danger is that while you're fully informed about God and His plan, you will miss the wonder and splendor of it all. Revelation is God's call to reawaken our slumbering imaginations, to set us in front of a vision of the future that no eye has seen, and to present to us the throne of God that every knee is going to buckle at the mere sight of. We don't need more information at this point in the Bible. We need our imaginations rekindled. You see, the final destination for all of us is not a marriage as great as that can be. It's not a career as important and necessary as that is. It's not a house. It's not even family as great as that is. Our ultimate destination is nothing here in this life. Eternity is the future that awaits us all. And without a healthy imagination of eternity, we will end up imagineering a life that is far less than what God intended it to be, that is not connected to the future that really is coming. You know, we talk about something being beyond the stretch of our imagination. That's an interesting phrase we use. To think that an imagination can be and should be stretched. And we use this phrase because we know that our imaginations are in some ways kind of like muscles that need to be stretched regularly in order for them to stay healthy. And just like our physical muscles, the older they get, the more stretching they need. You know, I never stretched when I was young. I just jump up and run somewhere, get on my bike, play basketball, no problem. What I've learned now at my age is I need to stretch. If I just jump up and get on the bike or play some basketball or run somewhere or get off the couch, something's going to (laughs) break. I mean, something's going to pop, there's going to be sounds, and there's going to be pain. So I've learned that, boy, my muscles are not as flexible as they used to be. They need to be stretched. The same thing happens with our imagination. So Revelation, what Revelation really is, is it's stretching exercises for our imagination. By the time you get to the the end of the Bible, your imagination needs to be stretched. Mine does too. So in this series, we're going to be treating this book as it is written as poetry. We're not going to try to take the poetry and take an engineering approach to it. So the goal will be to expand our collective imaginations as we consider this amazing and vast painting of the future that God revealed to John on the prison island of Patmos. So if you're looking in this series for a, let's say, a detailed analysis of the ten horns and the seven heads on the beast in Revelation 13, you're going to be very disappointed in this series. I'm not saying we're not going to explain anything, but figuring out every horn on that beast is not going to be the primary goal. But if, like me, you're in need of your heart and your imagination being stirred by God and the future that he has planned, you're going to love this. I'm excited to move through this book. But Revelation is not just about the future. It's not just so that we might imagineer toward the future. It's also about the present. The second purpose is to uncover the present. The title of this book, like most books, reveals its purpose. 
And the title is given to us in verse 1. Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The title and the word describing what is written in this book is Revelation. This book was written in Greek, and in Greek, Revelation is pronounced this way, apocalypsos, or as we say, apocalypse. That's what Revelation means. Now, the word apocalypse literally means to uncover. That's not what we think it means. The word apocalypse has been used in movies and in books to describe this horrible war and ending and evil and all those kinds of things. But that's not what the word means. The word simply means to uncover, to reveal something that's been hidden. Here's what it's like to have something uncovered. Recently, I walked into our house, and I immediately smelled something great that was cooking on the stove. Now, I have a nose, and so I had some guesses as to what was in that pot. But my wife almost never cooks the same thing, same thing twice. She's always tweaking recipes and changing things, and it's always amazing. So I had a good guess as to what it might be, but I didn't know, and I wanted to know. So I walked over, and I removed the lid, and I looked over into that pot apocalypse, uncovered. That's what it means. What I had smelled and wondered about was now uncovered. It was revealed. It was a pot of chili. Now, this is the role that Scripture plays in our life. This is the purpose of the Bible. It is to uncover what we can only get a whiff of and sense and and wonder about but really don't know. Apart from the Bible, we can only guess about what God's like. We can only look around us and marvel at the sensory wonder of what we see, but we can't know with any clarity anything about the cook behind the smells and the things that we see and taste. I mean, we can wonder, why is it that we humans have such a strong moral bent to us? Why is it that we are always talking so strongly about what is right and what is wrong. We can't necessarily agree on what is right and wrong, but we are so strongly opinionated about what is right. Why is that true of us? Why are we so moral? We can notice that, we can sense that, and we can wonder about it, but we can't know with any certainty where that comes from, why that just appears in the heart of us from early, early on in every life. We don't know where that comes from. We certainly can't figure out what is really right and what is really wrong by any objective standard. We can guess, but we can't be certain. And we can speculate about things like life after death. It's an amazing thing that throughout all of history, most all of humanity is convinced that there is life after this death, after death, but why? To be honest, without the lid taken off, without any uncovering, without any revealing, it's just wishful thinking on our part. But then God takes the lid off of the pot of reality of what we can only smell and sense, and he tells us what's in the stew. He speaks. He reveals himself. And he reveals us and tells us who we really are. And he reveals our purpose and the purpose of the flow of history so that we might be a part of it. 
And now we can know. Before we could just guess. Or we could be very opinionated in our guessing, but honestly, we could just guess. So in this, the final look into the stew of who God is and who we are and the purpose of it all, what we get in the book of Revelation is really a Cook's final summary. Revelation is a summary of the entire revelation of God, the previous 65 books. The book of Revelation has 404 verses in it. But in those 404 verses, there are 518 references to earlier Scripture. More references to what's already been said than there are verses in the book itself. And there's a reason for that. I mean, these 518 references are not just random cut and paste compilations of other parts of the Bible, but what is going on here is this is a retelling of what has already been said. It's a retelling now in picture form, in final poetic picture form. So if we don't know what has come before this book, we have no chance really of understanding the imagery that is presented in the book of Revelation. It makes no more sense to read the last book of the Bible apart from the rest of the books of the Bible than it does to read the last chapter of the novel all by itself. If you read the last chapter of the novel, you're continually wondering, who is this person? And what are we talking about here? Because you, you, don't, you don't know the story. You, have, you don't know what's it's referring to what's already happened. But if you don't know what's happened and what's been said before, the last chapter is going to be very confusing. But this is what many people end up doing with the book of Revelation. They sit down and they read it all by itself, and they don't really have an adequate understanding of, oh, it's referring to that part earlier in the book of Daniel. Oh, it's referring to what was said all the way back in Genesis. Oh, this, is a, this image first showed up in Psalms. And therefore, there's all kinds of confusion because it's read as an isolated book. And so in this series, we will be going back to say, this image first showed up here. That's how we understand what, what's being talked about here. So this book of Revelation isn't the first thing that God said on these topics. It is the last thing that God said. And there are ten topics that God summarizes and addresses in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at each, each of those ten. Here are the ten. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the last word on Christ. From the perspective of Scripture, in particular the book of Revelation, Jesus is the central figure in all of human history. That is not the perspective now. That will be the perspective eventually. And we are given an amazing vision of Christ at the center. And then on the 30th of September, we're going to look at the last word on the church. Again, this isn't the first time the church has been mentioned. Boy, a lot has been said about the church in the New Testament. But this is God's last summary statement. And what we see in this picture is why faith in Christ is never just about me, but it's also always about we. And why that is. And then we're going to look at the last word on worship. We get a, vi a vivid painting of the central activity of heaven, which is worship. Something that we actually get a chance to join into now. And then we're going to look at, on the 14th of October, the last word on evil. Evil is everywhere, always has been. But in this painting, we get a behind-the-scenes look at the great unseen battle with evil that's been going on and will now finally come to an end. 
And then on the 21st of October, we're going to look at the last word on prayer. You know, to us, prayer looks like kind of a last resort thing. If all of our engineering efforts are failing, we start praying. But from heaven's perspective, prayer is one of the most powerful things we can do. We're given an amazing poetic painting of what prayer does. And then we're going to look at the last word on witness. The significance of just the ordinary follower of Christ giving testimony to what God has done in their life. The power of that. And then on November 4th, on the Sunday before the midterm elections, we're going to look at the last word on politics. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I had this, all these topics worked out together, and just a couple weeks ago I thought, wait, is that going to... And it just lined up. It just works out. It's, it's a Sunday before the midterm. So, Then on the 11th of November, the last word on judgment, a vivid and chilling look at the final judgment of God. And then the last word on salvation. What's going to happen in the great judgment is either we will stand before God without any cover for our evil and sin, or we will stand in the cover of Jesus Christ. And it's a, an amazing picture that's painted here in the last word on salvation. And then on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll be looking at the last word on heaven, the most amazing and breathtaking final painting ever in Scripture given about what heaven is going to be like. Now, in the 65 books of the Bible that precede the book of Revelation, these topics, as I said, they've all been addressed. But not like this. These 10 summaries are the key images that God wants burned in our imagination as we turn the last pages of the Bible. Why? Well, it's because what we imagine about the future will determine what we engineer and the life we build. That's why what is described as a revelation, an uncovering in verse 1, is also called a prophecy in verse 3. Here's what's said about this book in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now, we see the word prophecy and we think prediction. But that's not the way the word is used in the Bible. Prophets are not future tellers in the Bible. They are God tellers. They speak God's words on behalf of him to us. They declare the words of God to his people. Now, some of their words, like the words in this book of Revelation, do deal with future things. But the point is never just information about the future for fascination purposes. It's always to generate present action, or as this verse says, to take to heart what is written and do something with it. You see, the point of getting a glimpse into the future is not so that we can be less surprised when it comes, but so that we can start building a present life now that fits in line with the future that really is coming. That we might imagine the future properly so that we could engineer correctly. This is said so well in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. It says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the appropriate question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. What he's saying is if, if everything that we can see 
is not going to survive the final end. It's all going to be destroyed. Then, then that must force us to say, so how should I go about building my life? I mean, we're all going to need to live in houses. We're all going to need to work jobs. We're all going to need to drive cars. We're all going to need to eat food. But should we give the lion's share of our best efforts and our best time and our best resources to stuff that's not going to last? Well, that wouldn't make any sense. The problem is, is we don't have a proper imagination that the future is really going to be not what we see now. And if we have a proper imagination of the future, we're not going to waste near as much time working on stuff that's just going to melt. We will imagine and build correctly. So what kind of people ought we to be? We need to get ready. We need to live holy and godly lives, God-referenced lives. Not just God-supplemented lives, but God-referenced lives. So through the prophet, God is speaking to us now. Not yesterday or tomorrow, but now in our today. And he is speaking to me and he's speaking to you personally about your life, what you're doing, what I'm doing right now, and whether that fits with what the future is going to be. The prophet of God never speaks generally to a public that is just curious about the future and would love to be able to predict what happens next and can maybe show off kind of their, their knowledge and impress people. Now, these famous last words will fill our imagination with visions of the future, and then they will convict us about the adjustments that we must make today in light of that future. So I invite you and myself to put down our engineering ways and to sit before God's poetic painting of the future. And on the Sundays that follow, to allow your mind and your heart to gaze into the image that is painted. And then I invite us to rise up and build a life, decision by decision and day by day, that fits inside the frame of that vision. And I pray that God will give us eyes to see and then hands to build. I can't wait to go all the way through this. And may God change us as we get a proper vision of what the future really is. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your uncovering and revealing who you are, who we are, what really is going on behind the flow of history and the rise and fall of nations. And we pray that as we take a look at your final paintings, your poetic words to us reveal to John on that prison island that we might allow you to uncover our life and show us where we need to make adjustments so that the future that awaits us all will be one that we have not perfectly but rightly built before you. Father, we know this fall there's going to be many distractions, many things that will come up that will keep us from gathering around your word personally and collectively. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to make this a priority because we have got to get our imagination right about the future if we're ever going to build rightly now.
We thank you for the food that we're about to eat outside and uh, the chance to sit down together and enjoy each other's company. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen.